Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's the weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. Growing up, I went to a lot of different schools. We moved around a bunch because of my dad's job, and that also meant that I went to different types of schools. A private religious school and a bunch of public schools, including a magnet college prep one. In the United States, education for kids is mandatory. We don't have a federal law saying so, but since 1918, Every state in the U.S. has required its children to attend public or private school with compulsory education laws. Doesn't matter what kind of school you go to, you just gotta go. Most kids in America go to public schools. In fact, 91% of students do. But over the past few decades, publicly funded charter schools have come into prominence. And that, combined with things like voucher programs, have disrupted and, one could argue, fundamentally changed the education scene. The COVID-19 pandemic raised the stakes even higher. A potent mix of backlash against masking policies, school closures, and remote learning hurt a lot of public schools. In fact, public school enrollment is down. And now, fueled by pandemic outrage and political opportunity, some Republican-led states are passing legislation to make school choice more accessible. We had a lot of questions about this, and so did you. We got emails wanting to know more about how charter schools work, how they're funded, and why they're so controversial. So, today on The Weeds, the origins of the school choice movement, how COVID shook everything up, and whether or not public education can survive the current political moment. By the way, if you have a question or a topic you want to dive into, send us an email at weeds at vox.com. You can also use our policy question submission form. The link is in the show notes. And one last thing, We had some tech issues when recording this interview, so today's episode will sound a little different than normal. Okay, let's get into it. School choice. It sounds simple enough, but it's worth unpacking. The basic idea is that it is a system where a family can choose any educational option that works for them, whether that's a charter school or a private school or a traditional public school, or even maybe homeschooling, they can choose whatever works for them. And then the tax dollars, the money that pays for it should follow the child to that option. That's Kara Fitzpatrick. She's a story editor at Chalkbeat. She's also the author of The Death of Public School, 
How Conservatives Won the War Over Education in America. She began with some charter school history. A charter school was designed in the 1990s to be a type of public school, but one that's sort of free of the bureaucracy of school districts um, and runs more autonomously, but still receives public funding, still has to be tuition-free, still has to be secular. The general idea is that if you wanted to start a charter school, you would have to apply to an authorizer. And an authorizer can be a school board, it can be a university, sometimes it's you know the mayor's office, it can be the Department of Education. And then you make this application, the authorizer decides if you are, you know, if your plan is good and if, if you can open, and then sort of under what terms you can open. So maybe you can open for a period of five years. Maybe it's less than that. Maybe it's contingent on how the students do academically. What do we know about enrollment for these different types of schools and for vouchers? Like, how many kids are these serving, and who are the children, you know, that are going to these schools or receiving these vouchers? Who does all of this serve? Most American kids are still served in traditional public schools. Charter schools have been probably the most impactful reform in terms of enrollment. Seven to eight percent of public school kids are in charter schools. There's about 7,800 charter schools in the country. And during the pandemic, that, that enrollment actually went up. So while traditional public schools lost kids, charter schools gained. And then private school choice programs, voucher programs... For as much sort of controversy and debate and conversation about those programs, they're still a fairly small percentage of the total. They grew significantly in the last few years, but right now they're about 700 to 800,000 kids. I know that opponents of school choice say that, you know, diverting funding like that, that can cause harm to public schools in the long run, like what is that argument there? How how does that happen? On the most basic level, there's only so many kids. So schools are funded based on enrollment. If a child leaves, they essentially take their dollars with them. And for the traditional public system, you have a principal at a school and you have to pay for the lights at a school and you pay for transportation and you're required to find a place for every child that comes in. And so when a school loses children, it takes some of that money with them. And then you end up perhaps with an uneven system where maybe there's some schools that are oversubscribed in a certain neighborhood and maybe there's other ones that are under-enrolled in a different neighborhood, but the system still has to exist, you know? And so... Over time, that can kind of chip away at the funding for a school system. And so you'll see school districts start to talk about, well, we need to close schools, especially some of these smaller schools, because you're paying for the facility, but maybe you don't have as many kids. So that's, I think, just the general idea is that if kids are choosing all of these different options, then naturally you're going to see a decline in the traditional public school system. Is there a world where there can be both, where there's both well-funded public schools and parents can still have that choice in their child's education? I think it's worth saying that there are a lot of choices already in traditional public school systems. You know, you have magnet schools, you have career and technical programs, you have some of these special admissions high schools. You know, there are a lot of choices in already sort of baked into the public school system. But I would say 
for about 30 years now, we've had some small private school voucher programs and they haven't killed off the public schools because they're small. I think what this depends on, you know, and something I've grappled with is can these things coexist? I think what it depends on is how big they get and then also what communities are willing to fund because sometimes what you see is people who aren't using public education don't necessarily want to be taxed for it. That's such an interesting way to think about it. I mean, I don't know. I'm not calling the fire department every day or like ever. Like, I do not know the last time I called 911, but it's like I'm still funding it with my taxpayer dollars. It's interesting that we think of it that way with education. Yeah, I think that point gets lost a little bit in the conversation about this because we focus a lot of the conversation around what someone's doing with their individual child, which of course is important. And it's especially important to that parent, that family. But if the system is supposed to be for everyone and if it's supposed to be a community obligation to pay for it because it's important to educate all children, then that's where, you know, sort of the fire department analogy makes some sense. Because I've also never called the fire department or called 911, but I certainly want those things to be there. And I want them to be there for my neighbors. What do we know about the learning outcomes at these different types of institutions? Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's what this is all about. So what's interesting is that for a long time, we didn't know. And so for a period of time in the book that I was writing about, there was this kind of assumption that maybe private education was better. And there was an assumption that charter schools would inject competition and competition would improve public education. But we didn't know. So now it's been about 30 years since most of these things gained some traction. And so we've started to get research that does tell us a little bit about the differences. And it turns out that the differences between charter schools and traditional public schools are quite small. Credo is an organization associated with Stanford that has studied charter schools pretty much from the beginning. And over time, really had not found that there was much difference between traditional public schools and charter schools. Quality varied a little bit from place to place. So maybe Boston has higher quality charter schools than Arizona or Louisiana. But overall, there just wasn't this stunning difference. And then just recently, just this summer, Credo put out its latest study and found that charter schools had a small edge in test scores over traditional public schools but it's tiny. And then for voucher programs, you know, it's actually worse than that. Most of the major recent studies of voucher programs, so in places like Indiana and Ohio and Louisiana, they didn't find that test scores improved when students used vouchers. And in some cases, they actually declined. There tended to be declines in math. So kids who are using vouchers not only are not getting necessarily a better education, at least in terms of test scores, they're maybe getting a worse one. I think that's so interesting. We put so much of the onus on education and the institution, but there are so many other factors for kids. I mean, like, if you don't have food at home, it doesn't matter if you're at a private or public school. If you go to school hungry, like, you're not going to perform well. Like, there are all these other factors. Yeah, and I think one of the things that comes up sometimes when you're looking at these things is just this larger question of, are we asking schools, especially public schools, to do too much? And I think that's a valid question because a lot of things 
are really outside the school's control to some extent. You know, a lot of things have to do with poverty and what's happening at home, you know, all of those things. And and so there is that question of what are we asking schools to do and is it beyond their capabilities? Can you talk a little bit about that tension between public schools and charter schools? Because it's very real, you know, I think in pop culture, one of the greatest examples we've seen is Abbott Elementary. But like this plays out in real neighborhoods and in cities and towns, suburbs all over the country. I love Abbott Elementary. Just going to it's so just going to shout that out. It's really good. (laughs) Are we positive we don't want to be a charter school because I don't want so bad. They don't even require all their teachers be certified. Yet they take our funding, not to mention the private money from wealthy donors with ulterior motives. Weird cash swirling around. Don't threaten me with a good time. Oh, you know, not every student in the neighborhood could count on attending Abbott if we turn charter. Now, what if only half of these students got to come here next year? And if you know a lot about education, it's just, it's so entertaining to watch some of the ways that they tease things out to move off of Abbott Elementary. Um, The problem with competition, essentially, when you're talking about charters versus traditional public schools is that charters are still supposed to be a public school. And so it's a strange thing to kind of have those compete. But what you end up having is if someone's going to compete, then naturally there's winners and there's losers, right? And so there's kind of this question of, well, how many charters is too many? Are the charters going to replace the traditional public schools? And you see that play out more in some of the urban areas. And then the the largest example is is in New Orleans, you know, post-Katrina, that that entire school system essentially became charter schools. But you have this tension in neighborhoods of, okay, if these families are moving over here to this charter school, then what's what's the condition that's left behind at the traditional public school? You know, did the charter school peel off families who maybe were better resourced or, you know, are they taking kids who actually need more help? Like, how is that playing out on the actual school level? Okay, so now that we know the basics, Let's get into how we got here. That's up next after the break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. 
That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. It's the weeds. I'm Jonquilyn Hill here with Kara Fitzpatrick. So, Kara, the idea of school choice has evolved quite a bit over the decades. Your book does such a good in-depth history, but what's the TLDR of that history? How did the school choice movement come to be? You could make a case for actually starting the book almost with the nation's founding, because we've been debating how to educate children, you know, since the start. Um, The founding fathers didn't agree on how to educate children. But I started the book in 1950 because there was something really interesting happening in that era. Segregationists in the South, they could see Brown versus Board coming down the line because there had been some cases at the university level saying that you can't have segregated universities. And so they could see that the public school system was next. And so these white segregationists, Southern Democrats, started kind of panicking and looking for ways to uphold segregated public schools. And one of the things they came around to was this idea that, well, we're going to privatize, essentially privatize the public schools. And one of the mechanisms also might be to pay for families to send their kids to all white private schools. But at the very same time, Milton Friedman, who is an economist at the University of Chicago, he was writing this essay that was basically saying, you know, that he thought that public education was a monopoly and that competition through a voucher system would be better. And he envisioned a system where the government would pay for families to essentially get an education on the open marketplace in whatever way that that worked for them. How can you give parents more power? Here's a very simple scheme for doing so. It's a scheme that is very old that I personally happen to have been trying to recommend and propose now for over 20 years. It's called the voucher plan. And that that would be a better system than having the government both pay for and run public schools. So he wrote this essay in 1955, which is shortly after Brown. And then at the same time as that, you have a priest in Milwaukee named Virgil Bloom, who was looking at vouchers as a way to pay for religious education because, you know, as a priest, as a Catholic, he felt like families were essentially getting punished by choosing religious education because they're paying taxes and then they're also paying tuition. And he thought that was an issue of religious discrimination. 
And so I thought, well, this is so interesting to start the book here because you essentially have these three threads that then you can see throughout the rest of the history. You know, you have the economic argument. You really have this racist sort of who is this serving and who is it not serving through the segregationists. And then you have this idea of religious liberty. So that kind of sets the stage. I really thought it was interesting It just seemed like such strange bedfellows, you know, like you're reading this book on education and it's like, oh, Milton Friedman is making, it's not even a cameo, playing a very prominent role in all of this. Yeah, I mean, he lived a long time and and he never changed his mind about vouchers and he was a really prominent advocate for them. And he is often called the father of school vouchers. And it's interesting because he has this prominent role in education, but he also did all of these other things in economics that maybe people who are plugged into education don't even know about. So then in this history, you see that school voucher programs do actually get passed in the South. They are actually largely being used for the purpose of giving white children an escape from desegregating public schools. The court system starts striking those programs down and saying this is racist, which it was. And at the same time, though, you have a few progressive voices sort of enter the mix. You have Christopher Jenks, who was a sociologist at Harvard. You have Kenneth Clark, who actually was involved in the Brown case. He did the doll test. In 1939, psychologist Dr. Kenneth Clark and his wife, the late Mamie Phipps Clark, used dolls to gauge ego and self-esteem in young black children. After asking the children questions about white and black dolls, the results shocked both the Clarks and the nation. We found that uh, black children knew that they were different, that they had lower status. They internalized in the development of their own self-image these negative stereotypes of the society. And those voices are saying, well, actually, maybe school vouchers could be used to empower low-income children. And then nothing really happens. This is all theoretical outside of the programs in the South. In the 1990s, this is when this picks up. And you have the first modern school voucher program happened in Milwaukee in 1990. And then from there, you know, eventually you reach present day where we have these these programs all over the place. And at this moment in time, they are growing. I came of age during the No Child Left Behind era. And so, you know, I grew up on like, hey, your test scores are bad. We're falling behind all these other countries. Like everyone, we're testing, we're testing, we're testing. When did America's education system take prominence in the cultural zeitgeist, particularly the idea of it failing its children educationally? You can kind of pin the start of all of this to a report that came out during the Reagan administration in 1983 called The Nation at Risk, which was this this huge landmark report that basically said that American education was on the decline and it was such a serious problem that our national security was at risk. About 13% of our 17-year-olds are functional illiterates and among minority youth, the rate is closer to 40%. More than two-thirds of our high schoolers can't write a decent essay. Our grade is a stark and uncompromising U for unsatisfactory. There's all kinds of debate about that report and whether or not it really was kind of overstating things. And part of that conversation became a little bit about choice, you know, because there was this idea that maybe 
competition would help this problem. And maybe families need more choices because they have to get out of these, you know, sort of failing schools. And this came up really for the first time, this kind of idea of public versus private choice, vouchers versus charters, this whole thing in the 1992 presidential election when you had George H.W. Bush, who had previously opposed school vouchers, he turned around and said, yes, we need vouchers. These dollars to spend at the schools of their choice will become the muscle that parents need to create the best schools for their kids. And then you had Bill Clinton, who said that he was for public school choice and charters, which were extremely new at the time. Like people didn't still really know what that was. But I favor public school choice and I favor radical decentralization and giving more power to better trained principals and teachers with parent councils to control their schools. Those things would revolutionize American education and take us to the top economically. I want to fast forward a little bit to COVID-19 because that also feels very much like a turning point not only with school choice, but just with parents and frustration when it comes to their children's education. And, you know, there's also this conversation about learning loss because of the pandemic. And it seems like parents really have reached a new tipping point. And I'm wondering if that's what you've seen in your reporting and also how it compares to these tipping points in the past. Like, I'm curious where this moment kind of sits in all of that, with all of that context. The pandemic really, it created this this political moment for school choice because you had this upheaval, you had schools close, and then you had remote learning, which some families were quite frustrated with. And then just at a very basic level, when you close schools, you create a childcare crisis for a lot of working families. And so you had a lot of women primarily leaving the workforce, you know, to try to take care of their children. You had a level of frustration that was rather high And so what you saw were a lot of families trying other options. So Catholic schools who have had enrollment on the decline for years and years, they had a little bump, maybe a one-year bump in enrollment. There was a big increase in homeschooling. Charter schools absorbed a bunch of kids. And the traditional public schools had a significant decline in enrollment. You know, they lost probably a million kids during this time period. And so this really gave Republicans a political opportunity to say the solution to this is more school choice, you know. And so we've seen this explosion in legislation, all of these expansions and creation of new programs. But one thing I think is sort of interesting is that for some families, this was a blip. It was a short term solution to this problem of my kid's school is closed. So I've talked to families where You know, they had to have their kid in school. They couldn't handle having them at home. They couldn't pull them out to homeschool. So maybe they went to a Catholic school, but for a year, and then they went back to the public system. For charter schools, a lot of those families actually stayed. They tended, charter schools tended to keep their enrollment. Homeschooling in some places has still stayed somewhat high. And Black homeschooling has actually stayed fairly high. And that's a slightly different issue. Some of those families saw things in remote learning that they didn't like. And they thought, my kid is not being treated well. You know, maybe this teacher seems a little racist and I'm going to pull them out altogether. Or I don't really like what they're being taught. I want them to learn other things. And, you know, and so you saw these different things happening. But one thing I thought was just fascinating is at the same time, a Gallup poll last year showed that that most families were actually pretty happy with their kids' school. And there was there was this kind of 
gap between the public perception of public education or public schools and the parent perception. Several states have passed legislation to allow for more of that flexibility for school choice options. I'm curious about what's in those bills and also what they signal about the choice movement and where it's headed. What are some patterns that we're seeing? One of the things that was really notable and is still happening right now is that there's been this very significant shift from targeted programs that are for low-income students or maybe students with disabilities to universal programs where states are now saying every kid in the state is going to be eligible for this school choice program. And that is a really, really big shift in the school choice movement. And it's interesting because for me, one of the things I was sort of writing in the book was this idea of within the school choice movement, whose vision for choice has kind of won? Is it Milton Friedman who was pushing for universal vouchers? Or is it sort of this more progressive view of empowerment to give something primarily to sort of our neediest children? And and my argument was that that Milton Friedman's side really had won. And that that is actually what we're seeing play out right now with this push for universal. I, I want to talk about another way that private education is being funded. You know, it's popular among some folks in the school choice movement, and it's an education savings account or an ESA. What is an ESA and how does that work? This is the sort of big push that we've seen along with this idea of universal vouchers. An ESA is is essentially a type of voucher, but it's a little bit different because it is far more flexible and it's basically giving a family sort of a limited use checking account with tax dollars where they can take a certain amount of money, depending on the state, and they can use it to pay for a variety of educational options. So in some states, that actually includes homeschooling costs, but it can also be maybe testing fees. It could be private school tuition. It could be like an online program. It could be therapies. Maybe your child has a disability and needs certain types of therapy. It can also be transportation. And so it's extremely flexible and it's really, really opens up all of these different possibilities for families in a way that a voucher doesn't because a voucher was really paying for just private school tuition. It's interesting looking at these ESAs because, you know, they have caps and some have higher caps than others. Like I've seen caps of $2,000. I believe Arizona has a cap of $7,000. But I wonder how helpful that actually is when private school just seems so expensive. Like I'm in DC and, you know, looking at like I've just like picked a private school and granted it's up there, but like Georgetown Day School for like pre-K and kindergarten It's over $42,000. Like, I don't know how helpful and how accessible things like vouchers, things like ESA actually make private school to those that are in need. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the big questions because these programs have never really paid for the very top tier private schools, you know, and you see the same thing in New York where Horace Mann in the neighborhood I used to live in is 50,000 or more a year for one child. (laughs) And and that feels like college. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is college tuition. Yeah. And I, you know, in kindergarten, especially, I don't know what you're getting necessarily for that money. (laughs) Like that's a, that's a lot of money for one year of kindergarten. 
But, you know, I will say that with an ESA, it does vary quite dramatically by state. So in Indiana, I think Indiana has one of the more uh, expensive ones. I think the average value of an ESA is something like $17,000. But in West Virginia, it's like about $4,000. And so depending on where you live and what you're choosing to use it for, you know, it actually could be really helpful. If you are someone who was paying for maybe Catholic school and it's eight or $10,000 a year, this might cover that. Or if you were already paying that expense and this covers even half of that, you know, that's pretty helpful to your budget. If you're paying for, in the places where they allow it, for homeschooling, that money might go pretty far because curriculum is not that expensive. And maybe, you know, depending on what else you're planning to do with it, um, that might be useful. If you're needing to pay for some combination of an online program and maybe occupational therapy and you're paying that out of pocket, that could be useful, you know? So it really, it really depends on how people use it. But I think, you know, to your original point, these programs typically are not paying for what we think of as these really sort of Tony private schools. What are some of the arguments against ESAs? Like, it sounds like, you know, for a lot of students, I think especially bring up the occupational therapy, like there are people that there are students that have special needs, like that money can go a really long way in helping them get the education they need. But what are some of the arguments against ESAs? So there's a few, you know, and not even just this sort of idea of, of pulling resources away from from public schools. But, you know, if you do have a child who has a disability, one of the things that you lose essentially when you leave public education is your right to be served under federal law. So maybe you're paying for occupational therapy, but you don't have the same rights that you had when you had, you know, uh, an IEP, which is your plan in a public school for how they have to serve you. So that's one sort of caution for families of students with disabilities, but also some of those families have a really hard time getting what they need. So, you know, that that can really go either way. I think one of the one of the arguments against these programs is that because they've opened it up in some places to every student in the state, a lot of those families that are now using the ESAs were already in private school to begin with. So they're not people who are escaping, you know, a low-performing public school. They're, they're people that already were paying for this cost of private education. And so now the state is absorbing that cost. And there's a pretty good policy question about whether or not that's a, a useful way to spend public tax dollars. And, and that trend is true in Florida with the most recent expansion. It's been true in Arizona. It's been true in Wisconsin that you're now, the state is now paying for private school for families that were making it work on their own. So what's next for the future of public schools? That's up next after the break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey. 
instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. It's the weeds. We're back. School choice sits prominently in this new wave of parental rights concerns we're seeing, especially among Republicans. What do you see ahead for public education, especially with an upcoming presidential election year in mind? So I think Republicans have found it to be really politically useful to attack public education. And I don't see them stopping that. You know, that's something that we've seen in the sort of early Republican primary debates. It's something some of the Republican governors have really leaned into, especially Ron DeSantis in Florida. I think to some extent, this idea of parental rights as kind of a slogan is very masterful. And I think Republicans are very good at sort of mastering the PR of these things. And so I think we're going to continue to see that play out. And I think we're going to continue to see these sort of accusations that there's indoctrination happening in the public schools and that choice is a solution to that. Because now at this point in time in the history of this movement, school choice has really become just this baked in part of the Republican platform. That is their solution for education. I think something we've hinted at throughout this entire episode is how religious schools in particular fit into this conversation. And, you know, usually the division between church and state is pretty clear. But earlier this summer, Oklahoma approved the nation's first religious charter school, which is a public school. And, you know, there's been a lot of battle back and forth because if you're thinking about the separation of church and state, it seems like it shouldn't be a thing. And can you talk a little bit about what's going on in Oklahoma right now and that fight? This is kind of a wild development. It's not even in my book because it's <laughs> it's such a, a crazy development just in the last few months. And you could kind of see where this was coming, but it's it's definitely out there in terms of, of what's going on in education right now. But basically, it was um, a charter school board, an online charter school board even, that approved, you know, on this narrow, very contested vote, a religious charter school application from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church came forward and said, you know, they filled out an application and said, we want to offer a Catholic education. They're very clear that it's an explicitly Catholic education as an online charter 
for students in Oklahoma who maybe because they live in a rural area cannot access a traditional Catholic school. And so the board signed off on this, which of course immediately prompted a legal battle that is still ongoing. But what's really interesting about this is that this might actually become a thing because on its face, it seems unconstitutional. But if you look at what the U.S. Supreme Court has been doing, not just under the chief justice, under John Roberts, but for the last 20 years, they've really been kind of marching in this direction of providing greater state aid to private education, including religious schools. And then under the Roberts Court, that has really continued. You know, that's that's really continued in this direction of being very in favor of religious liberty. And so it kind of gets into this wonky question of whether or not charter schools really are public or whether or not actually they might be private is this question of whether or not they're state actors. Because at the end of the day, a charter school is not run by the government. And so there is this question of whether or not they're really public. And if they are not, then based on these recent Supreme Court cases, there's a good argument to be made that they should be allowed to provide religious education and not just allowed, that they should have to provide religious education if someone like the Catholic Church wants to open one. We're having this conversation, and I understand that when it comes to all of this, there are policy and political implications. But at the end of the day, I think it's fair to say that most parents care less about these larger policy and societal implications and more about, like, the children that are staring them in their face right now and making sure they're receiving a good education. And I'm wondering how to square that. How, like, a person who's like, you know, I want to live in this world where XYZ is the education landscape, but then they look at their kids and they're like, oh, but not my kid, though. Like, is it possible to do both these things at once? Because this is really where the rubber hits the road. And you see you see a lot of people not necessarily standing on the principles they think they have when it comes to this in actual practice. Yeah, I think that's one of the very real tensions here. And one of the things that gives a lot of power to the school choice movement, because if no one picks anything else, then these programs don't happen. They don't thrive. You know, if you don't choose to send your kid to the charter school down the road, then the charter school down the road does not exist, right? All of these things are based on the idea of choice. And so there is this very real tension between people who say, and I hear this from parents, you know, I hear people say, I really wanted to support public education, but I just don't think my kid is going to thrive in a room with 35 kids, you know, and I want my kid to have a library, you know, I want them to have a band program. And so you have this kind of tension, especially in areas where the public schools are under-resourced. You know, there are plenty of places where the public schools have all of these things. And usually, unfortunately, it's it's because they're in affluent neighborhoods and those parents are sort of buying into this idea that they're paying a lot of taxes to get this thing. But I think you also run into this issue where in some places, you know, I think New York is one of them, you meet affluent parents 
who are not even going to consider the local public school because they have this perception that paying 50000 a year for Horace Mann is better. I ran into that as a parent in New York City with my kids in preschool where families were, would, you know, just like in the pickup drop-off line would ask you what you're thinking about for kindergarten. And I said, you know, I'm looking at this public school and it was like, oh, I'm not even touring public schools, you know, because there is that kind of idea that maybe something over here that we're paying a ton of money for is better. But I think, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is that in areas where maybe the public schools are under-resourced or maybe they're struggling a bit, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then you do see parents say, the biggest thing I could do to help this is to send my kid there. You know, because if you opt out, it's really hard to advocate for something. If you're saying something like public education is really valuable, but I'm not going to use it, that kind of undercuts the idea that it's valuable. I think that there's this really beautiful idea, almost like a utopia around the concept of public schools. You know, it's clear that it's an experiment like the democratic experiment and, you know, experiments have their ups and downs. And we get to this point where it's like, should we give up on this? Should we be doing it this way? Like, is this working? Is this working? It's hard to say that we should give up on it. For one thing, most American kids are still in public schools and some of them are working wonderfully well. You know, there's beautiful things going on in some schools. And also, I think we have to remember that the sort of hallmark of American education is this idea of local control. You know, it's a very decentralized school system and they vary pretty dramatically. But at the heart of all of it is still this idea that a public school cannot turn someone away for being gay. They cannot turn you away for having different religious beliefs. They can't turn you away for being maybe, you know, having behavior problems or, you know, having trauma that they have to, the system has to accept all of these children with all of their complications and do their very best to educate them. That is still true. That still exists, you know, and a lot of schools are trying really hard to make a difference for kids. And I think just beyond, you know, the education aspect of it, public schools are also still places of community. They provide childcare, you know, they in some cases provide medical care and dental care, they provide food. And so, you know, that was an, an aspect of public education that I thought was highlighted by the pandemic because when these schools closed, a lot of kids weren't getting, you know, there was there were efforts to feed children the food that they would have had in school, you know? And so I think public schools are still a, a very vital and important community institution in a lot of places. And, and also the larger question about school choice programs is, do they replace that? Can they replace that? You know, are they doing a better job? And there's not actually that much evidence that they can. So at the end of the day, you know, we probably should still be trying to improve the public school system for everyone. Kara Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thanks for having me. That's all for us today. Thank you to Kara Fitzpatrick for joining me. And a special thank you to our listeners, BJ and Anna, for their questions that inspired today's episode. 
Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Krishna Ayala engineered this episode. Serena Solon fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Quillen Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com slash give.